The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick, and Professor Michael Cohen, Constitutional Law Professor and Shepard Mullen Law Partner. Greetings, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Stephen. Stephen. <laughs> Stephen, this is Michael. I have to uh, ask how many law schools Mitt can add to his credential. He, uh, Michael, we, we talked about this uh, off stage, and he cannot add any more if he wants to be introduced with the long chain. I can't do it. That's a good rule. I really Don't I do. sound out of breath just getting it all out like that? Ab- absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to have to come up with abbreviations. Well, Stephen, you should also tell everybody we're all calling from different places today. This is the magic of technology, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. Should we give up our locations? We, we should. We should. The Witness Protection Program says we're safe within the boundaries of each lo- okay, location. Okay, you go, you go first since you have a little <laughs> hardship story. Uh, well, I'm calling from Scottsdale, be- Scottsdale, Arizona, because I was here for a conference and unfortunately the flight I was supposed to take back home last night didn't happen, so... I'm I'm here in the high desert. All right, Michael, you want to give up your location? Uh, yeah, just hearing uh, how Mitch is in the high desert, I'm a little stunned because I am here in London in the United Kingdom this morning, and our weather is not quite um, as warm and pleasant as where Mitch is quote-unquote stuck, Stephen. Gotcha. Okay, so I can't top either of those stories, but I will say I am in the safe confines of classroom number one at San Luis Obispo College of Law. How's that? That sounds like the perfect place to be. All right, good. Now that we're all settled, let's tee up the topic. We want to talk about trade law and some of the important uh, facets of trade law and specifically the decision by President Trump to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we can talk about NAFTA also, and various topics related to the importance of trade overall. Yeah, that, that is the, the topic that I, um, I, I feel is a good one to delve into by way of a second conversation, Stephen, and if it's appropriate, I thought I might share some big picture thoughts with you all. Uh, to start our conversation today. Um, First, you know, I am of the view that there is an an uncontroversial principle that is quite firm. International trade lowers prices and expands markets for U.S. multinational companies. That is an absolute truth. There's, there's no characterization to it. it. It is simply a fact. International trade lowers prices to American consumers and expands markets for U.S. companies. It's for this reason that Republican Senator 
Ben Sass recently said, he's a Republican United States Senator from Nebraska, recently said that risking trade wars is reckless, not wise. Some recent examples. Boeing in December and just recently, as, as last week, announced a contract to sell 60 and 80 airplanes, respectively, 140 airplanes to Asaman Airlines and Iranian Airlines. That transaction, collectively, those transactions, are a $22 billion deal for American multinational Boeing that will create 36,000 U.S. jobs. You know, Michael, uh, I'm really glad that you opened with that general statement about the value of opening and expanding international trade. Uh, it's a good place to start because what I'm uh, gleaning immediately from your comment is that it increases the number of players, it creates job opportunities, and your last reference to Boeing and the fact that there is uh, what I think a lot of people miss, and that is the residual advantages, and that's the increase in jobs. I think it's it's fascinating. I think you're absolutely right to cite it that way because you can support it empirically, and that's a really good place to start. Yeah, just a couple more quick examples. You know, NAFTA has created a North American auto industry that has opened up the whole continent, and the U.S. share of that auto industry is 70%. And the price of a pickup, near and dear to not only American hearts, but my own Chevy Silverado 1500, yeah. uh, is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, the pickup truck prices have never been lower um, uh, in, in history re relative to the value from the North American supply chain. China, which bought Volvo from the Swedes, just opened a plant in South Carolina. BMW has several plants throughout the southeastern United States. Um, and, and although the global supply chain, Stephen and Mitch, can definitely detract from American manufacturing jobs, it also can increase American manufacturing jobs by lowering the component prices and allowing a manu American manufacturing to continue where it otherwise might disappear entirely to different places of the world. The, the, the concept of international trade has far and away expanded America, the American financial sector and expanded American multinational businesses. Point two I'd like to open with real quick. Deficits don't mean anything. The fact that we have a deficit with China simply says that China sends us goods that we pay really low prices for, and it increases American buying power. The fact that American clothes are so inexpensive is a, is a, is a perfect example of this. American appliances uh, or appliances sold in America, dishwashers, washer machines, dryers, very inexpensive, etc. Deficits don't mean anything. They are simply a reflection of the buying powers of the consumers in a particular market. And in fact, a trade deficit can indicate that prices are low, innovation is high, an abundance of good exists, and American consumers have great purchasing power. The third point I'd like to make, and I know you'll start leading me places, is this. Trump campaigned on deficits. Trump campaigned on the very thing 
that an economic policy means absolutely nothing but sounds really good. Uh, my own view is that he completely stands to unwind 60 years of hard work in consistent American international trade policy through complete lunacy, and I'll probably pause there to see <laughs> where you'd like to take me next, Stephen. Yeah, well, well, Mitch, we'll all jump in on, on points sure. one, two, and three, Michael, because I think you set the stage nicely. The last one, of course, is going to invite some uh, a, a careful view on what on Trump's decisions. And I, I can just throw this one out right now for both of you because I've always wondered about this in general, and I'll add it to the pile if you don't mind, Michael. I've always sure. wondered about business acumen of, and I'll go with presidential candidates first because I can wind the clock back and share that personally the first time I was intrigued by a candidate's business background was with Ross Perot. And then more recently, uh, it would have been with Mitch Romney. So I wonder about how business acumen transfers into uh, the office of the presidency. And I thought I'd kind of throw that one out because I think it's an interesting issue. Well, when well you and let, let me, uh, Michael, uh, let me uh, just add a, a slight just, nuance to that have, as well. I have to say oh, this. For, with respect to Trump's business acumen, when you've been bankrupt several times and nobody will lend you money but the Russians, I think it actually does speak to your competency to be making these decisions as president. But go ahead, Mitch. Well, I, I, it really does tie back into the very first point that I heard you make, which is that the the business and economic issues that you raised really are apolitical. And in, to the extent that they're political, you're talking about some very conservative, basic free market principles, which either are apolitical or many times have been thought of as very, very conservative principles. So, so where I'm con confused in all all of this, and I have a background in economics and statistics as well as political science, I'm confused in the mixed message that seems to be coming out of the current trade discussion. I won't even say policy because I, I can't see a policy in it at all, but the current trade discussion, it seems to be all over the board and not following anything. And you've got international clients, if I'm confused, I can't imagine what it must be like for them. Yeah, well, the clients are, are suffering, but but even more importantly, to the point of uh, that you're raising, Mitch, which is you know so salient here, um, uh, which is the consistency point, or or the fact that all of a sudden we're all over the map. China's emergence in the world economy was seismic, right? It would be equally seismic the United States to all of a sudden change its international trade policy after 60 years and begin to withdraw from multilateral uh, agreements. The United States has created probably the most stable currency in the world and the most consistent trade policy in the world and the most stable market in the world. And what, what, what Trump's er erratic views on trade, which, you know, perfectly described, as erratic as his tweets. You know, not, it's not a matter of, of not knowing what you're doing. It's, it's a matter of, of literally being completely scattershot in that regard, um, uh, is creating instability 
not only in America for the first time with respect to its goals and its market, but instability across the world. And that instability is going to find a home in a more stable nation and economy that is not the United States. And that is a massive danger. Michael, let me, uh, instability is a good uh, topic that we can riff off of a little bit here. And uh, let me get you to comment a little bit on NAFTA and the recent uh, changes of opinions or at least statements by President Trump in terms of whether to pull out and uh, withdraw from NAFTA. Yeah, that's, it's a, that's a, great, uh, a great recent example. Or mixed messages, I guess, right? Because it's unclear what he's doing. It seems like there's a little brinksmanship going on. There's a lot of brinksmanship. The the first let's talk let's talk about the brinksmanship first. But it, it might be good to talk about NAFTA first. What is NAFTA? The North American Free Trade Agreement. It created, in essence, a, a, an attempt to create a, a 450 million people free trade zone between Mexico, the United States, and Canada. Um, our own industry has benefited from that. We own 70% of that market when it comes to auto manufacturing, Mexico and Canada, 17 and 13% respectively. It was a win-win-win for everybody. U.S. agriculture gained $3 million, uh, 3 million jobs. We have a trade surplus with Canada. Uh, Trump cannot figure out whether he wants to abandon it, reform it, or simply punish our neighbors for no reason at all that, that, uh, and he has created a complete frenzy about what NAFTA means and what its future will be. Um, he daily flip-flops on the issue, uh, and he uh, tries to use, it seems, uh, uh, a, a carrot and the stick approach, uh, namely uh, using different treaties and different powers that he has over tariffs and duties to punish both Canada and Mexico in different ways, then threaten to abandon the treaty altogether, get calls from them, meaning the presidents of both nations, then tweet that he's had a wonderful call with them and he now wants to reform it. Michael, let's do this because we're coming up on the break. Let's continue on the discussion about NAFTA and international trade and mixed messages that may be sent to the partners, Mexico and of course, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about trade law and uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and international trade in general. We'll continue on those topics after this short break. Don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, 
Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Dr. Wagner and Winnick on the law. If you are just joining us, we are talking about trade law, and we are talking about NAFTA. We are joined by Professor Michael Cohen. Professor. And... Shepard Mullen Law Partner, and we're going to continue with our discussion on uh, NAFTA and then weave into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So, uh, Michael, let's talk about the impact connected to the U.S. pulling out of or potentially pulling out of NAFTA, and along with that, what industries are connected to NAFTA and specifically Mexico and Canada and the U.S.? Yeah, so that, what a great, that's, it's a great place to go, Stephen. It kind of, you know, returning to the flip flop, right? The you know Trump's daily flip flop. Will we abandon NAFTA or we will reform it? And the instability that that creates, it creates a question, right? A question for Mexico, a question for Canada, which is what will Trump do? Uh, and and by the way, the the you know the, the the continued diagnoses of psychiatrists around the world that our president. Is is literally um, mentally ill uh, and has a problem with truth doesn't help this. And I, I actually am not saying that in a, you know, in a in a in a way to elicit some fiery emotion. There, there's a fact out there, and the fact is that thousands of psychiatrists around the world daily diagnose the President of the United States, as mentally ill in very serious ways, not op-ed ways. And so that doesn't help the ability of other nations to believe in the stability of anything the man says, let alone his own you know, proof that he has absolutely no bearing in truth. How do you deal 
with somebody who literally lies every day to the point where you truly wonder if they have any knowledge of reality. Well, it, the one thing you do is you don't trust it. You don't trust anything he says. It creates a massive instability. So let's talk about Mexico. Mexico, right, we, we, is their largest recipient of our exports for corn. Corn is one of our largest exported crops, and Mexico is the largest buyer of corn. Um, Mexico's top export destinations currently are the United States and Canada. We are all North American partners in a massive free trade zone. But let me mention, Mexico's third and fourth uh, destinations for exports. You want to know who they are? China and Germany. If you all of a sudden are Mexico and you have a very unstable trade partner, your largest trade partner, the, the trade partner where 80% of your products go, and you think that you are going to lose, lose, lose through completely inconsistent and undependable negotiations and threats, what do you do? You start turning to your third and fourth trade partners, China and Germany. And look at what Mexico is doing. It is creating um, economic zones uh, that are almost identical to the economic zones in China, in its port cities, in Mexico's port cities. These zones are tax-free. Mexico's government is providing financing for these economic zones, training for employees, land grants for companies filling in to these economic zones. Are these companies American companies? No. These companies are foreign companies, meaning foreign to the continent. In essence, it's the China model. China's investing in these zones, and China's getting the foothold in all of those areas. That's a massive impact to American manufacturing. And by American manufacturing, I mean North American manufacturing. And the one free trade zone that we've created, Trump almost overnight, is beginning to cede that manufacturing foothold to China. And Michael, you started the show by saying that, you know, the United States created one of the most world, the world's most stable uh, trade partner. But we would be naive to think that China is, is almost on the border of being insatiable in their ability to take consumer goods. And food products, right? I mean, we, we, there's no, it's just not even possible to underestimate the volume that they could choose to purchase if they turn their spotlight on and turn the spigot on for Mexico. I mean, is that an overstatement? It's not. You're talking about a consumer market of a couple hundred million people, Mitch, and China would gladly replace America as the exporter to that consumer market. It is not an overstatement at all. And they would even more gladly do it in exchange for subsidized manufacturing on the continent. And that's exactly what's occurring. And let me throw one more question in, because I think it's another thing that's forgotten sometimes, because it's not just about the dollars and cents. It's that with trade goes the opportunity to have certain things involved. And we talked about it on the first show when we had you talk about trade, which is uh, things such as employee rights, human rights. Not that, that it's the primary way to do it, but to the extent 
we have a sense of the fact that we would not like to have child labor be the basis of some of this global manufacturing trade policy has been able to, we certainly think, improve that. So if we abdicate that and no longer have a role to play, we're not just abdicating the dollars and the jobs you pointed out, we're also giving up the progress we've made on environmental and labor laws globally as well, aren't we? Absolutely. We are giving up our position in the world whatever it may have been, and however anybody may characterize it, we are literally giving up our position as a political and social leader and an agent of change. And we have been a tremendous agent of change around the world, as have many other countries. We're not the only one, but we are certainly one of the key agents for positive social and environmental change around the world, and perhaps the heaviest weight uh, out there. Uh, uh, of those playing in the arena, Michael. Uh, let me ask you. Let me ask you. Sorry, Mitch. Let me, Michael. Let me ask you about. Uh, and and I, I know you might. This will be challenging. I think. Uh, but I'd like you to just think objectively, or do your objective best to offer uh, a motive by President Trump on changing positions. I mean, I don't think anybody, and I'm certainly not endorsing the fact that there is a change in his position, uh, that there's table pounding, what I call previously brinksmanship. But um, is there uh, an, an advantage to threatening to pull out of NAFTA? I mean, is there a leverage play there? Is there any kind of logic you can assign to it? No, there's not. Does Mexico want NAFTA? Yes. If you change the tariffs, it makes no sense for Mexico to be in NAFTA. They have said that, and they'll leave. If the United States threatens to leave it, then that, that's where they'll be, and they'll look to others. They'll fill the gap. It will be hard. They will suffer hardship. So will we. So will we. And, and they will fill that gap. They will fill it with the Asia-Pacific rim. And they're in another. Uh, they're in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is something we withdrew from. Uh, it's an organization of 18 nations that have a multilateral trade arrangement, and China is now stepping into our role there. So they so will. Well, in the case gap. of Mexico, you're saying they would go elsewhere. So they will go elsewhere. Okay. So there's there because I think it's it's almost unavoidable to. Let me rephrase, uh, Stephen. Let me rephrase that. They're going elsewhere. Sure. Sure. Already. Sure. Uh, but ultimately, it could lead to their uh, almost complete separation with doing business with the U.S. It's, it could be that dramatic. Well, they're going to impose, what, what, they'll, they'll impose some tariffs on our corn. How's that going to help? Sure. Absolutely. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I mean, right down the list. You know, there, there's no sanity to, to the method. And I don't know whether to literally to attribute it to to psychiatrists and psychologists who uniformly uh, declare that that the president of the United States is clinically insane and a dangerous way, or or, or gamesmanship, or or perhaps uh, you know the president says whatever he wants without any rational basis on an insane basis every day, and his advisors finally get him to a place where 
he realizes, or at least the White House as an institution, the executive branch of government, makes a statement that tries to temper the, the um, radicalism, uh, uh, realizing what's at stake. I, I mean, I almost get the feeling that that's somewhat what's going on. You have literal insanity every day in the chief executive officer, and then a whole bunch of people running around saying, are, are, you, are you kidding? We cannot possibly do that. That's going to hurt us in a million different ways that apparently the American electorate who voted for the guy doesn't understand. Well, let me uh, come they, back to that. But let me talk about the American electorate a minute because you're talking about corn. And let me throw another one in. Uh, let's talk about cotton. I mean, if sure. you're talking about the, the vast uh, portion of the United States and the middle part of the country, the corn and cotton are two of the most uh, dominant crops, both of them are in, inextricably tied to Mexico. And to, to bring this back around to NAFTA and, and to somebody sitting here listening to the show today, I mean, just take a look at what you're wearing. The odds are pretty good that you're wearing something that has cotton in it. And right. we grow cotton in the United States, but we don't gin cotton in the United States. The American companies gin cotton almost exclusively in Mexico. And then it comes back as cut goods, as the T-shirts and socks and underwear and blue jeans that we're wearing every single day. So that that's the, the image that I like to have people consider when we think that isolationism can somehow benefit the American worker. Well, who are we going to sell that cotton and corn to if Mexico decides their major trade partner will be China? And there are plenty of other places in the world that grow corn and cotton. <laughs> right, 100% right in, in every respect. It, you know, we're, we're essentially taking a, a, an entire continent that with our partners, Mexico and Canada, we helped create this, this massive free trade zone for just us, for just our 450 million North American people. And we are, are, are closing that down to a market of something less than that, pushing uh, the, the borderless and seamless free trade manufacturing and uh, trading of goods that has gone on, pushing that aside and forcing uh, those those neighbors to now engage in new partnerships uh, away from us. And and I, I, for the life of me, Mitch, don't see how that helps America in one single respect. Michael, let's shift it. Let's shift the topic to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and and let me ask you to just introduce it first, uh, and then when we come back from the break, uh, we'll expand upon that. Sounds great. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was an historic multilateral trade deal between teens of of nations. I, I I can't ever remember whether it was fourteen or eighteen. I have to always count them up, but it's essentially. It was the nations on North and America, North America and South America's Pacific coast, and almost the entire developed Asia-Pacific world with the exception of China. So think, South Korea to Japan to Singapore to Thailand and South Asia, uh, you know, from the North Asia um, nations, all the way around uh, Vietnam, then all the way around the rim to Chile, Peru, Mexico, Colombia, the United States, and Canada. We created 
through this multilateral treaty that took years and years to negotiate uh, a, a, a sort of a historic rim around the Pacific of trade of trading partners. The United States was the key stability in all of it. We were the reason that it was able to all come together. It was the product of our own desire, our own multinational trade policy, and our own intentions. And the first thing Trump did in office by executive order was to withdraw from it. All right, so Michael, well, let's let's stop there, and then when we come back, we'll expand upon um, the impact of withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about trade law, and when we return from this break, we will expand upon the topic of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. 
constitutioncenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to constitutioncenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've been talking about trade law, and we have the benefit of Professor Michael Cohen, constitutional law professor and law partner with Shepard Mullen, and of course, Mitch Winnick. And uh, we are at full strength, and we want to pick up our discussion on Trans-Pacific Partnership. Michael, let's talk about that, and you got a chance to introduce it and the importance of that and the fact that there are, I think you said it's probably 15 or 16, I think, members of that partnership. Um, Let's expand upon the value of that uh, as it relates to trade and uh, North America's position with respect to trade. Right. So let's talk about this. Something we, you know, again, to set the stage uh, or to continue setting that, the, the nation works for years to develop a multilateral trade platform that encompasses almost every market around the world um, uh, or around the Pacific, if you will, with the exception of China. And, 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 and why? Well, China is a market that America has to compete with in, in a whole lot of ways. And it is a very one-sided market in, in many ways, meaning that we definitely buy much more than we sell to and we need other markets to expand our sales into uh, for American multinationals, the financial sector, and everything else. So there is a market. It's a massive market. It's called the rest of the world, and we work <laughs> very hard all the time to be in it. And in this particular case, President Obama, uh, and put politics aside, actually finished something that had been started uh, through, through many presidents, which is to come up with a single set of rules that would help up all nations around the Pacific Rim, which is the largest rim and the largest ocean in the world, um, so, sort of partner, commingle, compete effectively, and yet, uh, you know, begin to um, free each other's markets and open them to unto each other. And prior and, to formality, Michael, it had just been operating really kind of on a memorandum of understanding, right? And that's right, ad hoc. Uh, you know, uh, the, the understanding, S- Stephen, that, you know, if you, if you don't start a trade war with me, I won't start a trade war with you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? a, a little bit stronger than a pinky promise. You, you got <laughs> it. Got it. And, and so what did this TPP do? It fenced in China. It fenced in China. It, it established America as the stable leader in currency and market leadership and political and social change and all of those things that we've talked about. That's what this did. This was nothing but good for the United States. The first thing Trump does is he leaves it. So let's look at what happened. Chile. Immediately, Chile, by the way, uh, you, you know, over the through its own bilateral agreements, and Chile was a strong participant in this TPP. Chile's economy has grown four percent a year. Its poverty has gone down to eleven percent in 2015, from 39 percent in 1990, as a result of its exporting trade policies and its understanding of the importance of international trade. 
Chile immediately calls a meeting of everybody who's left in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The whole of Latin America has 214 million consumers between Chile, Peru, Colombia, and Mexico. So, you know, we're wondering what's going to happen with the United States. Chile calls a meeting. Everybody comes, Canada too, all of Asia. And there's a giant meeting in Chile with the Asia-Pacific leadership and everybody on the Pacific coasts of North America and South America, except for the United States, to discuss their quote-unquote collective security. Their collective security. Guess who else they invited? Does it begin with the guess China? (laughs) China. Right? The villain in Mr. Trump's campaigns is the person he's literally ceding the world to, or the nation he's ceding the world to. China comes. China says, I'm in the Pacific too. The United States doesn't want to be in it, but I do. They left. I'm here. We're a massive part of the Pacific. We would like to help with your collective security. Singapore immediately says, well, now I'm left to only choose Beijing. That's literally what the head of Singapore's government said. With the United States out of the TPP, I am left to only choose Beijing. So I, you know, I ask the question, what's happening? What's happening is the TPP is going to move on. The TPP is going to survive. The TPP is going to thrive. The TPP is going to excel in ways that everybody anticipated in this nation. The only difference is we're going to be watching it having left the bus as it goes down the superhighway to change without us. So tell me, how did this withdrawal help the United States? How did the people who put Trump in office, how are they going to be helped by the inability of our multinationals to partake of their own expansion in this way and create new jobs? How is that going to help America? So let me just bridge to the last little piece that happened this week. So with we've, we've got a very vague uh, overview of what tax policy would be. And one piece of that was the repatriation of American corporate dollars by a one-time uh, bonus of not having to pay much in the way of taxes to bring the money back with the idea that that money would be used into growing manufacturing infrastructure. But the problem with the economic balance of trade is it it doesn't help you to build manufacturing infrastructure if you have no one to sell it to. Right. And so th- we, we end up with another bit of a disconnect, it sounds like, that if you if you understand this balance of how what China could usurp as far as the purchasing power of all of this, and we're no longer part of that trade cycle, it's going to be pretty difficult to even cash flush American corporations to justify ramping up manufacturing if we've diminished the markets for the products. Absolutely, Mitch. And think about who our, our you know, American multinationals compete with and U- European multinationals compete with, for, for, for that matter. You know, as I sit here in London and, and think about the Brexit and their own withdrawal um, and, and their own sticky wicket, to use their term uh, about you know what and their what they're in now here. But you know, 
Think about who our multinationals complete, compete with. We compete around the world with China state-owned enterprises, North Korean multinationals, right, and Japan multinationals. That's primary. That's our primary competition. And then in the financial markets, we, we compete with Hong Kong banks, Tokyo banks, and Singapore banks. What we've essentially done is handed them all an advantage and taken ourselves out of any competitive even playing field to at least squarely face a market where everybody is playing on the same terms. And why would we be expected to be advantaged in that new world, that new world order? You know, to raise the question, are we changing the world order? Is Trump single-handedly and a completely irrational behavior that is literally unchecked because of his presidential power in this arena? Is he single-handedly ceding our advantage or even our position? I, I shouldn't call it an advantage. Our position in the world. He's going to turn America upside down in this regard. And if people who voted for him think it is positive, they are in for the nightmare of their lives. Michael, M- Mitch, let me, let me uh, shift the topic a little bit to the source of power, because we, we talked on the break about the idea of, and you had just mentioned unchecked power, Michael. Uh, I, I assume that all of this is, uh, or the focal point in terms of power source would be the power of the executive branch. Uh, with respect to laws or statutes or federal cases, is there anything on the horizon that you think could could change or impact the ability uh, of the president to make what I'll call sort of um, mercurial decisions or or flip-flopping type of behavior. Sure, and that's the kindest word that you can afford to it. And I do understand that that stems from your own philosophy, Steve. Well, no, no. I mean, Michael, you've had. I mean, you've you've talked I've about checked, yeah. you know cognitive I've, instability, and you've hit that well a number of times. I'm just really trying to hunker down on some of the legal topics. No. I, t- I completely agree and understand. The president has broad powers when it comes to international trade. And in fact, he has emergency powers. The president can implement emergency trade barriers and tariffs and duties and all types of things that impact trade, even including through free trade agreements and participation in World Trade Organization and everything else. Those emergency powers are always present, particularly under a statute where it's rarely used or implemented for, for national security. And this president has already taken steps for purposes of national security that courts have questioned, the, the most visible, right, being immigration. Um, you know, court, courts have questioned whether or not there was a need for the immigration policies specifically tied to national security. And without solving that question right now, There is the potential that the president, for these same reasons, in fact, the president already has done it with respect to steal from our our neighbors in in the NAFTA community as well as as, um, uh, Asia, uh, implemented new trade barriers and duties on steel imports for for purposes of quote-unquote national security. There could very well be court action to see if there is, in fact, a tie in this area. You know, the, the thing is, Stephen, there's no precedent here. We've never really had, you know, to the point that you articulated, we have not in our modern history since World War II 
had a president who behaves irrationally in this arena. We have had presidents that have had different policies. We have had presidents that have had different views on the meter and where you, t- and where you tweak it. But we have never had a president who is behaving in such an irrational manner in the international trade environment where there is little visibility until it's too late and until it really matters. Um, and and uh, the, those questions may be raised here for the first time. Nobody so, Michael, knows. Let me ask you, Michael, let me ask you, is it too big of a leap to then say that as we watch the, you, you talked about there's not been court cases, but we're getting some court cases on the immigration side that are, that have within them the question of executive power. Is it too big of a leap to say we should be watching those cases to see whether the courts are going to step in uh, or potentially might step in in the future to limit executive power in things other than immigration? So basically anywhere where the president can claim emergency action and take action that we might see more cases and might see some of these getting up to the Supreme Court. You know, you know, I don't think it's a leap. Uh, in, in, in a weird twist of, of irony, you know, sort of, sort of this, the same um, instability. Uh, you know, to, to use a better word, I, although I, you know, I do want to slip into insanity. Um, the, the same instability uh, that is raising the exact same legal questions, albeit in a different area, applies potentially with equal force to international trade under the same standards, national security, that are just literally untested in this arena. Let me, who would bring, who, we've talked about standing, I don't want to, we're towards the end here, I don't want to go too deep into this, but the, the question of standing came up in challenging executive orders and immigration. Who Who has standing to bring a case on trade where the basis of the decision has been executive power? I don't know. <laughs> I have to think that. I mean, yeah, I, I can chime in briefly. I, it, there's going to be a host of aggrieved parties. I think we'd all agree to that, right? Right, right. Uh, do you have a cognizable claim based upon the impact of an executive order um, in terms of articulating that claim? Michael, I think I think you did it. I think the, the sum and substance of our show today probably highlighted impact. So as far as there being an aggrieved party pool, I think that's uh, almost a no-brainer. So it could it, be it, the corporations, party. it could be yep. trade groups, uh, could the, be the, industry the, trade groups. Yep. The, the problem is the power and the immunity that's afforded to exercise that power in the executive branch and whether or not you know the, the national security uh, authority that Congress has given them is broad or, or contained and cabined in some way. Congress may have, uh, you know, the last say. It, it always has. Come back ability. to Congress. I agree, and that's probably a song for another day, which is my <laughs> way of drum rolling our dismount. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome. Well, Michael, that's been a great a great discussion and and dealing with international trade. I am convinced, Stephen, that this is not going to be the last time that we have this as a major topic for the show. So, as we always suggest to everyone, if you'd like to re-listen to this with all the complicated issues we've done, uh, we've dealt with today, you can go to wagnerandwinnick.com. You can also go to voiceamerica.com business channel for Wagner and Winnick. And as we suggest to you every week, if you don't know the law, 
know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. 
the bottom line in business talk.